Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome and thanks for joining us today. I recently spoke with Matthew Hunter about his new book, Wicked Intelligence, Visual Art and the Science of Experiment in Restoration London. This came out in 2013 with the University of Chicago Press. The book is a really fabulous transdisciplinary study, and the disciplines that it transcends include, but are not limited to, the history of art and the history and philosophy of science, a study of what um, Hunter calls the visual archive of experimental and philosophical practice in Restoration London. So what it takes is the archive of um, visual materials, and these include paintings, they include drawings, they include texts with a strong visual component, and they include kind of paper toys and paper tools and instruments, like a a paper cutout of a fish and a paper cutout of and a model of an instrument. And it uses these tools to look at transformations in the way that early modern Thinkers, philosophers, people working in the experimental sciences like Robert Hooke, but not limited to Robert Hooke, really understood and worked with what Hunter calls a concept of wicked intelligence, a particular kind of intelligence, a particular kind of, as he calls it, ruthless cleverness that brings together visualization techniques with really important moments in the story of the history of early modern experimental sciences. also the history of early modern art and architecture and architectural thinking. It's also full of some really fabulous stories, and so it opens with a toothache. It opens with um, an account of a merchant who basically gets um, swindled by a painter and convinced when the painter goes into his workshop, um, and he he complains of a toothache, that the remedy involves stripping his clothes off, burning himself, filling his mouth with water, and standing by a fire until the water burns, or the water uh, rather boils in his mouth. It's a really funny Um, It's one of many, many funny moments in this story that's um, quite elegantly written, um, quite um, evocative of the personalities, the sometimes really interesting and really quirky personalities of the early modern um, scientific community and artistic community in London. So the story continues to take us through histories of codes and cryptography, histories of, as I mentioned, paper instruments, um, Robert Hooke and his micrographia, Peter Lely um, and his artistic work that includes painting images of sleepy-eyed characters. It includes stories of Royal Society members both using intoxicants on other beings um, and also using intoxicants on themselves. It talks about the importance of an emerging collaborative nature of experiment that's rooted in particular visual tools and the exchange of visual tools in this um, restoration context. And it takes us out ultimately into the great fire of 1666, the rebuilding of London after this fire, different ways of thinking about connections between architectural space and wit and cleverness um, and experimental science and the arts in this context. It's a really lovely book. It's really beautifully written and also full of not just some really interesting insights into the history of science, but also some really funny and really wonderful characters um, that it's really just a pleasure to spend time with. So it was a pleasure to read the book. It was an absolute pleasure to talk with Matthew about it, and I hope you enjoy both. 
We're here today to talk with Matthew Hunter about his new book, Wicked Intelligence, Visual Art and the Science of Experiment in Restoration London. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology and Society, Matthew, and thanks so much, not only for making time to talk with me today, but for dealing with the time zone conversion and for talking with me all the way from the UK. I really appreciate it, and I'm really looking forward to talking with you about the book. So thank you. Thank you, Carla. Me too. I'm delighted to be here, and I'm thrilled to have the occasion. So, Matthew, could you start us off, as is traditional for the channel, by saying a little bit about yourself and your background, and specifically, how did you come to work in the history of early modern science and to focus on images specifically? Um, Well, I'm an art historian. Um, I did my PhD, actually, for my sins on Robert Hooke and his friends, his circles in the early Royal Society of London. But I come at that interest from a background in studio art, which um, inflects my interest in thinking with and about materials, uh, a concern that certainly runs through the book as a whole, I think. Awesome. And that actually um, you know, leads into my next question. So as is, um, I guess, now unsurprising knowing that your background is so plural and really interesting, the book itself reflects that. So it's a transdisciplinary project, very much so, at least from the perspective of one reader, of this reader. And it brings together the history and philosophy of science with the history of art and architecture. It looks closely at the visual archive of experimental philosophical practice in Restoration London specifically. So can you say a little bit about how you came to work on this project in particular? What brought you to this topic? Well, I'd been interested in the Royal Society having seen Robert Hooke's magnificent Micrographia of 1665, which is this folio-sized, lavish work depiction of entities magnified through microscopic techniques. I had seen this work, and I had also read um, about research that had been promulgated by Robert Boyle, Hooke's early patron, among others, investigating a phenomenon known as second sight, which is an involuntary perception of the future, which was attributed in the 17th century and, in fact, continues to be espoused by certain uh, folks in the Scottish Highlands. There's a rich tradition of experimental research into second sight. I became fascinated with this. I wanted to know what might we learn about thinking about images and visual representation, if they were thought to be bearers of the future, what could that possibly mean? And then looking at micrographia, which itself is such a spectacular artifact, I felt like I wanted to know more. The Royal Society itself, the the institution to which Hooke, Boyle, Isaac Newton, John Locke, many others are, of course, connected is, at least according to traditional narratives of the history of science, um, a real bastion, an institutional home of the scientific revolution in 17th century England, and an institution that has been seen to have a, a key attachment to the use of visual technologies. So this was... Uh, a location that I wanted to study, um, also drawing upon scholarship in the history of art, I had expected that the materials I would find when I actually got here to London to conduct research would look like the kinds of artistic schemata, the sorts of 
um, especially 17th century Dutch images that are so well known to scholars of the period. But what I found in the archives was something entirely different. And that's effectively what the book is about. Can you talk a little bit about that? How, what did you find in the archive and how is it really different from what you expected? And I mentioned, um, or I asked this in particular, because you do mention early in the book that you were able to spend four years, is that right, working in That's the right. archive? So, so yeah, what, what did you find um, that surprised you? And can you say a little bit about working with this collection and maybe some of the highlights or surprises for you? Oh, absolutely. Um, I was extremely fortunate through um, fellowships and support from the Crest Foundation, the Social Science Research Council, um, and the Whiting Foundation, among others. I was able to be here in London working at especially the Royal Society Library uh, for four years, which really constitutes the backbone of this book. Um, And the Royal Society Library, as many of your listeners will know, is an incredible resource which houses uh, a thick, rich, and unbroken lineage of documentation, a paper trail that goes back to the very earliest founding of the institution in 1660 with the return of uh, Charles II from exile and the restoration of the Stuart monarchy. And what they have is not simply the back catalog of Henry Oldenburg's famous philosophical transactions, but the minutes, the uh, letters, the classified papers, artifacts in some cases that enable you to follow and to see how projects gestate, interact with one another, sometimes make it into print in the philosophical transactions, but as often as not, uh, don't. And so the images that I found were often extremely, surprisingly strange and uh, sort of twisted and tortured my capacity as an art historian to understand them. One example that I include in the introduction to the book relates to the case of um, uh, a woman named Elizabeth Travers, who awakens in late 1660s Plymouth to find that her breasts have swollen to pathological proportion. A local physician is requisitioned to examine her and to try to understand the cause of this malady. He uses the talent of a local draftsman who's clearly trained in some modicum of artistic technique and produces a rendering, a portrait of the sufferer sitting upright in bed with her breasts exposed. However, uh, Durston doesn't stop there. He also stretches out these long spans of linen tape to take the length and the circumference of the breasts. He then packages this up along with a letter written partially in Latin and in English, and he offers this assemblage of picture, text, and these tapes together as a way to communicate information about his case to the Royal Society to, to, from whom he is seeking support and engagement. Mm-hmm. 
And this is actually one of many, um, this is one of the things I loved so much about the book, one of many, many, many really fascinating stories in the book. So the book is making um, a series of really interesting arguments, and we'll get to those, I'm sure, in the course of our conversation. But we should also uh, mention, and I'd just like to mention for listeners, it's full of fascinating stories, fascinating characters, and sometimes really, really funny um, stories as well. So, um, so I'm sure we'll talk about some of those over the course of the conversation. So a book is a, a living being in a, in a way, and it has a life cycle. And this book um, began its life, or at least had a significant milestone in its life as a dissertation. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that process of transforming the dissertation into the book object that we're talking about today? Specifically, are there were there any major transformations um, along the way in how you were thinking about structuring um, or conceptualizing the project from one form to the other? Well, I think that one is signaled by the title, um, Wicked Intelligence, which is a a turn of phrase that sort of came to me as I was, it's my own, um, I'll I'll come clean about this and say it's not a period usage. It's a, a term that I developed as I worked through uh, the, the archival repository that I've just referred to and this rich material, these strange images uh, and this kind of constellation of diverse media being brought together. And what often I found occurring in following these artifacts of various weird sorts is that as frequently as not a, a line, a collective program of research would be developed and uh, a number of different strands knitted increasingly together through the collaborative collective ethos that's so important to the brand of Baconian experimental philosophy uh, avowed by um, the Royal Society. But sort of Frequently, two weeks later, two weeks seems to be the, the basic unit of time, someone would come forward with an attempt or a device or some tweak of this collectively developed program of research and want to advance this new tweak under their own um, patent application or in some attempt to make private or advance a personal claim upon what had previously been an open stream of shared collaborative endeavor. And as frequently as not, Robert Hooke was the person at the center of that maneuver who would be labeled by his contemporaries as a practitioner of dirty tricks or as uh, dishonoring his nation or himself in these attempts to um, advance his own personal claims through milking and um, transmuting the fruits of labors won through collective collaborative endeavor. Wicked intelligence to me seemed like uh, a useful heuristic for thematizing this way of working that I was so repeatedly coming up against in the material archive of visual practice and a way to, as it were, foreground and to highlight the ways of working exemplified by Robert Hooke, but shift the emphasis 
a bit away from Hook as the central protagonist as he had been in my dissertation and to um, try to narrate and to excavate the symptomatology of this way of working and thinking that um, is central to the book um, that you have read. Great. So the book, um, let's get right into the book then. The book explores, um, as we've been talking a little bit about, visual traces and, and visual traces of, of many different sorts of experimental practices in London to understand what you call the cognitive techniques and the practices grounding the work. It focuses on drawing, on painting, collecting, and building from about 1650 to about 1720. And as you've mentioned, Robert Hooke, even though he's not the only character, um, he's not the you know beginning and end of the story, he certainly is a major thread that leads us through this larger story and through these arguments. And so let's begin with him as chapter one does. Um, chapter one opens with Hook's drawings of and notations on comets. So it, it brings us into this world by bringing us into his drawings of comets. And it compares images and notes made in the 1660s with later ones he made also on comets in 1680. And you use this to open up um, a, a sort of reading of some really important differences that you're showing us in the way he drew comets um, in these two periods and, you know, why they matter. And so can you talk, can you open up the way you do in the book, um, our, our understanding of what's happening in this chapter by telling us a little bit about um, Hook's comets, sort of what's the difference uh, or what are the differences that we need to understand for understanding the larger argument that this book is, that this uh, chapter of the book is making? Right. Um well, the drawings that I really wanted to foreground in that chapter are this collection of drawings that Hook made of comets from the early 1680s, when there are a whole series of really important comet sightings unfolding, the most famous of which is the object that we now call Halley's Comet, which is visible to uh, percipients, uh, those making philosophical observations of meteoric objects at the time. But there are a host of other comets that Hook and others are looking at. This particular collection of drawings was found in a copy of a book purchased at the auction of Hook's goods after his intestate death in 1703. And on the collection of drawings that is now at the Royal Society, uh, Dr. Wood, Dr. Woodward, who found them, has scrawled the title of the book in which the drawings were found. Now, the drawings are to my eye, at least, and again, this is giving away my disciplinary <laughs> training as an art historian, um, extremely difficult to reckon with. They adopt a vast array of denotational techniques for plotting, charting, exemplifying, describing different features of observed comets, but also they pay great attention to the celestial place of those comets as seen over a sequence of nights. To make matters even more confusing, Hook frequently superimposes multiple nights worth of observations in a single pictorial matrix. And he adopts, he invents this very curious um, convention of 
drawing geometrical grids in between the telescopical stars, as he calls them, which correspond to the positions of major stars in the Ptolemaic constellations. Now, it's a, it turns out that the book in which these drawings are found is a really important star chart of those Ptolemaic constellations, and that's part of the argument that I want to unfold in the chapter as a whole. But really, what's at, what's at stake in this initial chapter is a methodological or a kind of meta- theoretical engagement with these weird late drawings. Because if approached, as I did as an art historian, if juxtaposed with, um, sorry, I'll say it this way, if those 1680s drawings are juxtaposed with the more familiar image of Hooke's graphic work, with which we're, we're familiar, that tends to be clear um, <laughs> lucid, um, focused upon singular targets, it's easy to slip into a way of thinking about those late drawings, I think, as a kind of um, surrender to optical appearances or uh, an aim, a, a falling away from an apex of clarity that he had achieved at this moment of the 1660s, which is the era of micrographia, his great sort of most elaborated pictorial work. And what the chapter tries to do through uh, a number of admittedly Baroque stages, and I use Baroque advisedly because the historiography of the Baroque as a um, theoretical concern to art historians features as a subtext in um, my thinking about the plotting of these two moments of the 1660s and the 1680s. I want to diffuse the art historian's impulse to see the late drawings as a kind of decayed form of the ideal um, pinnacle, the apex that Hooke had achieved in the 1660s and see them instead as operating under different aims, operating according to different principles, each of them no less ingenious and um, clever and uh, fitted to specific purpose, but uh, as different in kind rather than as a decay of of a, a moment of greatness into one of destitution, which is the narrative that's effectively crafted for us by the only period commentator that we have on these late, these later drawings of the 1680s, which is that of Richard Waller, Hooke's editor. Awesome. And one of the really interesting things that's happening in this part of the book is you're not only really um, complicating, but I use that in, the, in a positive way, right? A sort of opening up, um, perhaps is a better way of thinking about it, how we might look at these images and, and how we might understand what we're seeing and relating that to how Hook understood the relationship between seeing and producing images, right? That's one of the um, things that comes up in your discussion of micrographia is the didactic element of it, sort of the way he's using um, this text to think through the relationship between seeing and imaging. But as we move into the next chapter, we see that images weren't just um, static elements on a piece of paper. You're not just treating the paper as a two-dimensional surface. Images were, or images and paper itself um, were also instruments. They were tools. And what happens in the next 
chapter is you bring us into the world of paper instruments. So this chapter is going to argue that paper work, um, and I don't mean, you know, the, the uh, forms that come across your desk to fill out, to get grant money, et cetera, et cetera, but paper work, work done with paper as a tool was central to how early modern scholars read, how they traveled, how they processed information, how they produced writings, and how they understood drawn images. It opens with a paper model of a fish, of a herring, um, in particular, which I loved. Uh, which is one of my favorite um, parts of the book. One of my many favorite, actually, but I love this fish. And then it turns to focus on the paper model of astronomer Richard Townley's telescopic micrometer. Or, sorry, telescopic micrometer. I'm going to mispronounce everything. It's part of my special charm. Um, love me anyway. Telescopic micrometer. And this is a, a model that was made by Robert Hooke in 1667. So for listeners who... Um, can perhaps pronounce telescopic micrometer better than I can, but perhaps don't don't yet know what it is. Can you explain what was this paper model? What was it um, meant to do in terms of Hooke's work? Um, and how are you using this here to think through a larger argument about the significance of the micrometer for Hooke and for how we understand um, the work of Hooke and others in this period? Yeah, this... And in many ways, the material of this second chapter um, maybe promises the least <laughs> a number of different components. It doesn't have the flashy sexiness of the oil paintings that feature so prominently in the third chapter. And it certainly doesn't have the ambitious scale of the architectural interventions that figure later on in the book. But this material... Um, the paper fish, the paper micrometer, um, and the network of other concerns that Hook, I think, builds out from within them um, is, in certain ways, some of the most uh, vexing and, I think, important, um, one of the most important networks or gatherings of material um, in this project. It's some of the material that I found very, very early on in my archival work, and I really tossed it and turned it around uh, <laughs> till I was blue in the face, as it were, trying to figure out what exactly it was that Hook was doing in this crucial passage of roughly six to six months to a year um, of 1667 to 1668. Basically, the story, as I understand it, is this. Um, in early 1667, the Royal Society folks in Britain learn about the advancement of a new telescopic micrometric device, which is a instrument that's inserted into the, plane, the focal plane of a Keplerian telescope that enables the user to measure the apparent size of sites observed. I'm probably simplifying that, but let's call that a working definition. Um, it, this is advanced by a, a French experimentalist, Adrienne Azut, and a British astronomer, um, Richard Townley, drawing upon his own research and those of a Yorkshire colleague, claims to have a device that can nearly double the precision of Azut's micrometer. So he advances his claim by sending word of it to the Royal Society. 
This word is quickly published by Henry Oldenburg in the widely read Philosophical Transactions, where it's followed almost immediately in the very same issue. In the next article is a piece by Robert Hooke called More Ways to the Same Purpose. Hooke is very clearly interested in uh, micrometric um, instrumentation and improvements to telescopic equipment falling on from the kind of comet drawings covered and examined in the first chapter. Um, And Townley sends along with his communication a drawing, a sequence of drawings of the micrometer as installed into a a Keplerian telescope. He sends a massive folio-sized drawing of a fragment of the telescope stand, which I've never quite been able to figure out why that's so interesting, but there it is. Um, And so very quickly, Hooke makes a drawing, not of the micrometer fit into the telescope, but freestanding on its own. Then another development, another program of research enters into the fray, which is this. Um, Hooke had been involved in a campaign of research into respiration into connections between cardiopulmonary systems. This draws back upon his own research in the 1650s with Robert Boyle and their famous work with the air pump. And to advance these claims, um, Hooke had developed a program of experimental vivisection that was extremely brutal, involved opening the cavity of a test subject, test animal's uh, body, intentionally severing the windpipe, inserting into the lungs, which were in some cases perforated, uh, the rib cage is removed, Uh, a a tube is connected into these perforated lungs, hitched up to bellows. So the mechanical action of the bellows is used to pump air into the lungs. And all of this is a way to test the relationship between the action of the movement of the lungs and the sustenance of life. Now, Hooke is completely repulsed by these experiments, and he's compelled in the fall of 1667 by the Royal Society to initiate trials of these experiments again, even though he's said that he doesn't want to have anything to do with them. He's compelled to do so. Um, And my sense is that what happens with the strange paper micrometer model that he crafts in the fall of 1667 is a sort of displacement of his desire to see into the depths of animal life, to see these interacting systems, but to transfer it into a paper form of his representation of uh, the micrometer, um, where the problem of how to see inside bodies and see their interacting parts can be solved effortlessly. And a key component of how this ingenious solution, this transference of a powerful visual desire to see inside and a way to 
save the project from the defacing, defiling stain of cruelty that he thinks is so endemic to his anatomical vivisections comes with the chance opportunistic delivery of this incredible specimen of anatomical flat books, um, uh, fugitive sheet um, flap technology that's donated by James Collins, who's an important mathematician, uh, who becomes a member of the society in the fall of 1667, donates to the library this very book, which is seen by Robert Hooke, who's very closely connected to the library's future uh, activities. And then Hooke harvests this flap technique and poses it into his own scheme of mechanical and anatomical interface and comes up with this weird model that enables him to see bodies open and close simultaneously. There's one more trick up its sleeve, but I'll pause and you should ask me. <laughs> oh, I, no, I, I'll, I'll just mention for listeners who are, um, who've never heard of a fugitive sheet. This is super, super cool. These are um, paper images where here's a woman's body, raise the flaps. Oh, there's her internal organs. Close the paper flap again. Oh, there you don't see her internal organs anymore. So these are basically like early versions of pop-up books where it's, you know, um, that we may be familiar with when we, uh, some of us read them ourselves for fun. Some of us read them to children as an excuse to play with them. Um, but it's basically using paper to kind of open and close um, bodies. And there are lots of the wonderful images of these um, freely available on the Welcome um, right. digital archive of medical images that listeners, if you want, just go to the um, Google Welcome images, do a search for fugitive sheets or paper anatomy, and you'll be able to see some of these are amazing, um, amazing objects. So um, this is, and you know, this is one of my favorite parts of the book. So you describe um, Hook's paper model as fragile and wounded, and you've already talked a little bit about his concern with violence um, in the dissection and vivisection of animals. And in fact, one of the really interesting threads that um, reads through all of the chapters of the book in explicit or implicit ways is this idea of violence. Um, and so we might actually um, come back to that a little bit later, but it's one of the really interesting implicit threads through this material. Now, as well, did you want to, though, talk about the other trick? Because I was going to move us to the flashy <laughs> sexiness. So, oh, yeah. Flashy well, yeah, sexiness. I mean, I think, it's, I think it's useful for setting up some of the um, methodological concerns that emerge in flashy sexiness of Chapter 3, because part of what... There's this undergoing or um, an undercurrent of art historical anxiety, if I can be totally honest, about what does any of this have to do with art? Because at every turn in the story, it seems like uh, Hook, who has this important historical, you know, documented in period biographies, contact with Peter Lely, who is a preeminent court portraitist. And this would seem to offer, this would seem to be gold dust to the art historian for whom, um, following the contours of recent work in, in the discipline, finding actual historically based connections between artists and scientists rather than more, um, uh, sort of expressions of shared mentalities or something like this it is seen as the way forward. So Hook has this connection to a painter, but at 
many points in his work through the 1660s, 1670s, and 1680s, he seems to want to torture or twist or resist that heritage, even demonize the heritage of his own artistic training. And this comes forward, uh, I think, in um, toward the end of the second chapter, where I try to make the argument that what Hook does in physically taking apart and deconstructing and then effectively dreaming with this paper micrometer that he takes back to the material fabrication of paper itself and uses that as a conceptual model for understanding how it is the tissue, the bodily texture of skin that goes into making those targets of his anatomical dissection although he's now changed the question by following the sort of cognitive drift of this paper object, he allows the paper object and he positions it as having a lighter kind of epistemological hold than the entrapping, the overwhelming, the stupefying affect that he associates with art. And as I propose in the concluding section of the second chapter, there's a really amazing way where Hook appears to be using central principles of the inverse square law of universal gravitation that he's accidentally gifted to Isaac Newton in his famous correspondence of around 1680. He uses this as a way to calculate the force by which those artifacts that we make through our intentional volitional activity, actually have the effect of acting back upon us, drifting our attention away from them, just as the force of the planets, which are acted upon so strongly by the sun, act in reciprocal motion back upon the sun. So here we have this weird sort of showdown between me effectively as art historical interpreter bent upon telling a story in which Robert Hooke is uh, a key interlocutor for understanding artistic practice in later 17th, early 18th century Britain and Robert Hooke himself, who seems to be endlessly resisting. So the violent theme is certainly right there because I feel like I'm twisting and torturing Hook himself. But anyway, then this sets up um, uh, erotic sexiness or whatever the turn of phrase that we were. Uh, There you go. Um, So that's the backstory that sets up the sexy encounter of chapter three. Hey, action at a distance, right? You're right. So flashy sexiness. So in chapter three, we not only have flashy sexiness, but we also have ants getting drunk. And so let's talk about both of those because they're both awesome. So in chapter three, um, you introduce us to this guy that you've mentioned, um, Peter Lely. Is that how you pronounce his name? Lely? Correct. Okay. Right. Um, so Hook had studied in his studio, and you call him the preeminent visual artist of Restoration London. Now, Lely, um, you, you introduce him in the book. He's a fascinating character, and he's well known for his historical subject pictures. So... You're using these pictures, among other things, to turn our gaze from the images 
to the way that an idea of a philosophical beholder um, who views the images becomes really central to what's going on. So can you talk um, about that? What's going on with these subject pictures and um, how? what do we need to understand about that to understand the point you're making here about the importance of the beholder to what's going on in your argument? Right, well, again, by the time we've gotten to this uh, this um, sort of central portion of the book, my own internal clock as an art historian is beginning to <laughs> go up <laughs> to say, hey, wait, where's the nice art science collaborative symbiotic story that I've been coming to expect? And usually when we read these accounts of early modern art and science, the painters and the scientists or the experimentalists or the natural philosophers or however you want to say this are on the same side and they're in pursuit of nature and why is it that we have this cast of characters who are, you know, at least traditionally understood preeminent heroes of the scientific revolution are pilfering techniques from the visual arts and yet twisting them and turning them and uh, putting them to unusual and rather uncouth purposes. So the, the setup of this third chapter is to kind of force the issue and to say, well, what could we possibly learn by ramming the practices of Lili and the concerns of Hook together? And I do it in three different ways. And the first attempt is to try to use Lili's subject pictures. I mean, I think of this chapter as a series of three thought experiments. But I want to motivate it a little bit more strongly like that, than just saying that because then the reader will say, well, geez, why am I indulging this? But I, So they're dialectically intertwined with one another and they produce a positive synthetic result. One of which is to suggest that reading Lily's subject pictures, which are as often as not these subjects drawn these erotic subjects drawn from Boccaccio and from um, uh, sort of um, biblical myth, subjects of seeing and being seen. And uh, what I try to do is to thematize these concerns in Lily's pictures to show how a significant contemplation of the acts and the ethics of seeing is being worked out in Lili's subject pictures. Then by tracing the audience or what we know of the audience, which is admittedly a bit fragmentary, but we see how a royalist portion of um, uh, a strong royalist core was deeply involved in the patronage of these pictures. This maps fairly well onto the expanded picture that we now have of the constitution of the Royal Society itself and some of the major players therein. And so basically what I try to suggest is that an ethos whereby looking endlessly deeply into, um, into natural targets comes to be seen in this royalist culture as capable of elevating the seer, making the seer into something else. And I try to then 
map that concern through the experimental matrix of literally seeing through the eyes of another that was so promulgated in the wake of Rene Descartes' famous optical experiments of looking through the eyes of a bull and so on and so forth, and read it against this fascinating range of meditations that Hook himself engages about the interface between the structure of our bodily organs, our apparatus, and our um, uh, sort of physiological structure as beings, its consequence upon our perception of temporality and our perception of the real so-called beyond us. And so exploring the fantasy of seeing through the eyes of another, as we get in Lili's subject pictures, ends up offering us a historically situated way in which to carve out a conception of an ethos shared and valued by this um, sort of hardcore royalist elite of active within the royal society. So this is the first sort of way of um, shuffling the deck, as it were, of playing Lily and Hook and against one another to try to come to a productive, uh, synthetic resolution to how we can bring these experimentalists and artists who seem to, as often as not, be at loggerheads, we can bring them into meaningful dialogue. Now, the chapter goes on to do this in other ways as well, and, and I won't ask you to talk too much about that because um, this way we'll get to shellfish dot and other sorts of things. But I will mention um, Hook is also getting ants drunk um, in this in this chapter, in this wonderful um, account of the use of intoxicants in the research of Royal Society members and the ways that this feeds back into understanding a kind of sleepy-eyed look, as you put it, in Lily's portraiture. So you describe in this chapter, you describe the work the chapter is doing in the larger context of the book, and you describe it in terms of a fan, I think, as you put it, held by a slim handle. And so here what's happening is the story, as you put it, splays outward from drawing and hook toward acts of collecting negotiated among a broader, hotter experimental collectivity. Um, that's unquote. Um, and so here we splay out from looking at individuals and their relationships to really looking at the importance of collectivity and the collective and the collab explicitly looking at the collaborative nature of the philosophy of experiment. So the next chapter does that by looking at um, the ways that not only were images were crucial to the production of experimental knowledge, but the ways that they um, were contingent on the production of and the cultivation of collectivity, the collective. Um, so relationships and networks of people, of objects, of things. The chapter centers on the Philosophical Collections, which was a scientific periodical edited by Hooke from 1679 to 1682. And you look at the ways that um, visual visuality and collaboration co-produce each other in this work. Now, one of the characters that emerges in this part of the book um, is super fascinating, and I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about this. So in the course of um, making your arguments in this chapter, you introduce us to William Cole, the customs officer who works in Bristol. Um, so can you introduce us um, to him a little bit um, orally right now? Who is he and why does he matter in, in the context of the larger work that this chapter or this part of the book is doing? Well, William Cole is this 
absolutely wonderful character. Um, the, the 17th century seems to abound with uh, these just gems of characters, and William Cole is certainly at the forefront of that, at least in my mind. He claims to come from a modest background in the south coast of England. He's, we think he's born around in the 1620s or something like this. He claims to have known Robert Hooke, who's from the Isle of Wight, from uh, youth, and he has a post as a customs official in Bristol, where he's harvesting, apparently through a series of backhanders, for which I think he is brought up on charges and perhaps dismissed uh, from his services, where he's involved in skimming off the, the cream of the crop of goods, rarities that are being brought in from slave ships coming from Africa, from trading vessels uh, to uh, the Americas and to South Asia. He's amassing a repository of natural historical artifacts from which he wants to write a general history of nature. Now, one of the things that I highlight in a sort of earlier section of the chapter is Cole's wonderful animosity to art, following on from a concern um, that we've talked about already circulating through Hook. Cole is deeply scathing about art, which he sees as a sort of species of atheism or breeding atheism and disdain for God's great created work in favor of idolatrously looking at the benighted and um, gaudy creations of humans. And uh, he's all the while trying in this sort of desperate position of wanting to use the office that he occupies as a customs official to amass a base from which to write natural history, these artifacts and these wonderful treasures that he's collecting. And yet he's hamstrung by his efforts, precisely his efforts as an author, precisely by his lack of access to art, to uh, the engravers and the etchers and those who can make the prints that he thinks is crucial to his philosophical participation. So this is the kind of crux of the position in which he finds himself. But then we, if we look a little bit closer at William Cole, a much more complicated version or position emerges, which is that in the 1680s, we see him locked into this extremely ambitious uh, pursuit of a shellfish dye that is going to rival the Tyrian purple of classical antiquity. And he thinks that he's found the source of this murex dye from the tidal pools around Bristol. And he's been taught by various um, female informants about how to prepare and enhance this dye, samples of which he sends not only to the Royal Society, but also to the newly formed Oxford Philosophical Society. And he's clearly trying to play his relations off with these brokers, um, he sends these incredible samples, which are on 
various and different supports. He talks about parchment, and satin, and uh, these really sensuous materials that can accentuate the beautiful effects of his purple dye. And, uh, n- note here <laughs> the profound contrast with his supposed antipathy to art where he's glorying in all of the luxuriant substances that are going to be able to advance his philosophical claims. But it's also in a desire to advance imperial claims because this is a moment um, in the regime of Charles II when um, he's taking on more frankly Roman and more frankly imperial trappings. However, it all goes completely pear-shaped for (laughs) William Cole through a sequence of complex, uh, local, and effectively global political revolutions that end up such that he's made political alliances with the very enemies of the Glorious Revolution, so-called as that unfolds in 1688-89. And so Cole is then brought to this incredible pass where he needs to renegotiate a patronage relationship. And he's seeking support from someone who is interested, closely connected to the royal, uh, to the philosophical circles and shares his interest in color. And he makes an approach to Robert Boyle. And uh, as we were discussing earlier, when I read the letter that Cole writes, where he details to Boyle how he's sending this gift with a crate, with a bunch of these murex shellfish destined for Boyle that have been marked out and have detailed instructions about how he should go about preparing the murex dye and so on and so forth. But this is all motivated by this absolutely disastrous pratfall that occurs when Cole gets his one shot, his one audience with Boyle, where in the midst of a rapturous discourse, probably not unlike the one that I'm giving now, where he's (laughs) so desperately trying to impress that he's not paying attention to what he's doing and he steps into the light and he knocks over an array of instruments that completely destroys them. And, you know, he has this wonderful line about how he says to Boyle, you and your goodness wouldn't disclose to me what the exact cost was, but I imagine it was substantial or something like this. So here's this character who, on the one hand, is claiming to only be collecting natural samples, repudiating art, wanting to write a general history of nature, needing art, having this much longer history of conflicted interface between luxuriant artifice and um, natural philosophical production. It seems to me that this is uh, not only endemic of, uh, indicative of the situation of the provincial naturalist, but more broadly suggestive of the internal inter internecine conflict of the cosmological <laughs> worldview of the experimental collective as it's unfolding at this moment. Thank you so much. So as we move to the end of that chapter, and there's a whole lot more that's going on in that chapter um, that I won't ask you about strictly in the interest of time, but there is a Mm. whole lot more. Um, 
As we come to the end of the chapter, the language of architecture starts to play a significant role in the story. And in fact, the the importance of architecture, of architectural language, and of built spaces winds up taking um, the, the four in the last two body chapters of the book. The fifth chapter looks at the physical spaces of the Royal Society, society and it focuses on the Royal Society's museum at Gresham College. So you argue in this part of the book that the working collection became a model and a really powerful model for understanding the faculties of cognition. And in order to understand this, you bring us into um, Robert Hooke's notion of archaeotonical power. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, Yes. Yeah, your, your pronunciation is as good as mine. Okay, so archaeotonical power. Um, now, this actually becomes a really um, important way of relating for him knowledge and cognition with what's happening in built spaces. So can you briefly um, talk a little bit about this? Because the this notion does come up in both of the last body chapters on architecture. What is um, Hooke's notion of archaeotonical power? And what do we need to understand about that to understand what's happening in this last part of the book? Right. So just following on, from, don't worry, I won't talk much more about William Cole, but... Uh, no, very <laughs> Very briefly, one of the concerns that emerges at the end of that chapter is if you have all of these deeply self-interested agents like William Cole, who are absolutely bent on pursuing their own agenda, how can you go about reconciling them into a collaborative horizontal network of gentlemanly sociability that we normally associate with the Royal Society? And I think part of the force of the architectural, architectonical language and forms that emerge into the book and into Hooke's thinking around the years 1680 is the necessity for a vertical structure that can be superimposed onto this socially and uh, geographically distributed network of um, peer-to-peer collaborators. It needs to have a superimposition of a structure that operates. And the metaphorics, the language, the models upon which Hook seems to be gravitating, Hook and Christopher Wren as well, in the years of the mid-1670s into the early 1680s, which is a period of their extremely intensive involvement in the reconfiguration of London's built environment after the devastating fire of 1666, they're using this language of architecture to try to do, to try to theorize and to try to model an array of managerial um, structures that come to be seen as needed for knitting together the experimental collective. What I think is happening in this really incredible lecture, um, it's called Section 7 of Hooke's Lectures of Light, which is delivered twice to packed audiences at the Royal Society. He's trying to come up with an account of the faculty of memory and the, the genesis, the gestation of a conception of time, how it is that we come to be conscious of time, which is nowhere present, as we know from Augustine onward, in the eternal now of sensory flux. And Hooke claims that it's only by means of the interaction between um, 
this soul, the prime, prime movens of the body, which is immortal, um, which is immaterial, and its collaboration, its interface with the artifacts, the ideas that it manufactures in um, the wonderful laboratory of the animal body, as he calls it, that we gain consciousness of time. And very briefly and basically, the scheme that he sets out is one whereby the senses are collectors that gather information, that they bring it into a centralized repository. There in this repository that is kitted out with all of these appointed media capable of encoding and registering the ephemeral forms of sensory stimuli, it meets with the architonical and directive soul, which bombards with with radiation, the sensory stimuli being collected in by the senses that are then encoded, made into these physical things. Hook is repeatedly insistent that ideas are physical artifacts that are stored and linked in this chain that wraps around the centralized soul and that the soul can radiate its energy onto and by differences in the decaying nature of these physical things called ideas, it notices a difference between the present, a newly minted idea and an old idea. And from this, it generates a sense of time. But the action, the action of forming an idea, which for Hook is the sort of ontological basis of the unit of time, is what he calls the the action of the architonical directive soul, which is necessary for all cognition, for all thinking and all processing agglomeration of information. Now, part of the argument that I try to make in this book is that I think Hook is drawing his notion of the architonical and directive soul from a really crucial source, and that is John Dee's mathematical preface to Euclid's Elements, a text that receives a, a, a really interesting upsurge of interest in the uh, late 1670s, early 1680s, as a number of figures are drawing upon the language that D has imported from the Florentine Renaissance of Alberti, and of course, going back to Plato, to conceptualize the um, sort of omniscient, polymathic uh, mastery of theoretical knowledge commanded by the architect who becomes not uh, not the doer, but the figure who can direct others in the doing. This integrative force that possesses all knowledge and thus can um, sort of farm it out to an array of factors who actually do the deed, but it's the architect who, or this architective, architonical directive power that commands this um, all-encompassing, uh, theoretically grounded knowledge and thus can farm it out to others. Awesome. And uh, chapter six really looks into that um, idea in really fascinating detail in the course of looking at as you've mentioned, plans by um, Christopher Wren and Hook and Evelyn and others for rebuilding London after the Great Fire. Um, you talk about here also in this chapter about connections between urban architectural space and ideas of wit, 
which is really interesting. You introduce us to a property developer um, who's uh, interested in this kind of consumer elements of this. You introduce us to Christopher Wren's interpretation of Egyptian pyramids. You introduce us to some ideas about St. Paul's Cathedral and then take us into what's happening to these ideas in the early decades of the 18th century and how this changes. So uh, purely from the interests of time, I think I'll, um, I need to let you go soon. Um, so there's a lot about the book, uh, Matthew, that we didn't have a chance to talk about. Despite all of the stories that we've mentioned and all of the ideas, it's an extraordinarily rich study. And there's so much that we didn't, that we really just barely scratched the surface of. Um, of course, the interview is not meant to be a stand-in for the book. And I hope listeners will, um, who haven't already done so, will take this as an opportunity to, to read the book itself to see all of this richness and all of these other stories in detail. But before that happens, um, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that one of the, um, the, the, end, the ending um, chapters and the emergence of Nicholas Barbin, the property developer who you mentioned, is for me a really important way of watching, or as I understand it, the deck is being shuffled in the last decades of the 17th century and the first decades of the 18th. Um, And Barbin is, in important ways, a agent and extreme the theorist of those developments, where the configurations that are introduced in the opening passage, the opening narrative of the introduction, interactions between a painter, an experimental philosopher, and um, a merchant are, as it were, reconfiguration, uh, reconfigured. And I almost understand this as a... Um, Marshall Sollins has this wonderful turn of phrase of native anthropology of Western cosmology. I, I, I almost am tempted to see this interface between the imagination of urban space and architecture as seen by Hook and Wren, who are so insistent upon exploring and exploiting and inserting into the fabric of the city these ingenious devices, these clever contrivances, hiding telescopes into public monuments and using um, all sorts of knowledge harvested in very practical terms from experimental activity, bringing it into their actual architectural practice. And the imagination that a figure like Barbin has of his activities to the city and to the larger metaphorics of its unfolding where architecture is not building is not aimed at the head at advancing intelligence or ingenuity or wit or any of this. It's aimed at the heart. It's aimed at asserting social differentiation of advancing, um, desire of endorsing desire in an increasingly consumerist culture. This is the moment of the birth of consumer society as it's been described by social historians. And rather than trying to remedy the fallen nature of the body by 
endless expansion of the horizontal structures of the experimentalist collective may be mapped down upon by this vertical architectonical overlay as Hook and Wren want to do. It's as if figures like Barbin embrace and see as the greatest possible thing the fact that human beings are needy and want things and seek consumer goods to differentiate themselves and to assert themselves. And it's that marketplace that a figure like Barbin is targeting in his interventions into built space. So the concluding chapters um, where you sort of see the scope and the scale and the nature of the archival material fanning outward from the modest drawings of comets and the paper model that I described to no doubt um, infuriating length uh, to the the threshold of what's becoming Europe's largest city of the physical infrastructure of the city itself as being this site for the squaring off, the literal squaring off of the interest represented by Christopher Wren, who's a surveyor general and who's literally bringing suit against these frequently illegal developments being chucked up by Nicholas Barbin and his like, while Barbin is penning these really incredible um, theoretical treatises defending trade and imagining the emergent world of consumer economics. And it's that sort of um, cosmological shifting network that I think is crucial to reckon with in the ways in which I try to suggest that uh, the project of Hook gets defeated, defaced in important ways in the early decades of the 18th century. Well, Matthew, thank you so much. Um, Congratulations on the book. It's a beautiful volume as well as being a really thoughtfully conceived and thoughtfully written volume. And now that it's out, um, I imagine you're on to other things. So um, can you talk a little bit about that as a way of closing this? Are there any projects right now that are inspiring you and, and what's next for you? Oh, thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm delighted to just say something very briefly. I'm now working on a project that actually is centered about a century after uh, Wicked Intelligence. It's one that's centered on the chemical experimentation of Joshua Reynolds, the founding president of the Royal Academy of Arts, who's best known as a sort of Augustan theorist of painting, um, embracing emulation at a moment that's just about to be crushed by romanticism, we could say, but who fascinatingly is an inveterate chemical experimentalist who makes these strange preparations of pigments that are known to crack, to fade, to fall apart in some cases before he's able to get them out of the studio. So the project effectively takes up the, um, the gambit of, Wicked Intelligence, which traces this sort of troubled, vexed interface between art and science in 17th century Britain, and tries to make good on the question that's been proposed by other recent scholars, that somehow, troubled though it is, this moment of deep investment in the visual by experimentalists of the 17th century sets the groundwork for the efflorescence of British art in the 18th century. And I thought, well, where better to test that hypothesis than the 
the man, the, you know, the unequivocal figure of the British art tradition of the 18th century, who is Joshua Reynolds. And interestingly, I, the, the research that I've done so far suggests that indeed he's imbricated in this matrix of concerns in extremely interesting ways that builds upon, but also complicates the story that I tell in Wicked Intelligence. So I'm totally excited to um, see where that project leads me and um, continue to think with the experimental tradition that um, Wicked Intelligence is an attempt to um, advance and to open interrogation of. Well, that sounds fabulous, too. So I'll look forward to talking with you about that project as well in the future. (laughs) And in the meantime, thank you so much again um, for your time, for such a thought-provoking and really beautifully written book. And best of luck in your new project. Thank you, Carla. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.